Welcome, everyone, to Watch Challenge. On each episode, we challenge ourselves to find and watch a film of a particular type, and then we report back the results to each other and you fine listeners as well. My name is Aaron Spears. And I'm Mike Went. This episode's challenge is Forgotten Films of the 2000s. Well, first, we have to say Happy New Year to everybody. Uh, That's true. Yes. Uh, (laughs) So this is the first episode for 2024, and it's kind of it's kind of weird, uh, Aaron, uh, to think about this, that uh, I was actually this morning when I was getting ready for work, knowing that we were going to record this, yeah. <laughs> um, that movies that were released in 2000 are now 24 years old, which oh my God, they can drink. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And oh, wow. Yeah. It's kind of weird. You know, <laughs> it's kind of weird. I mean, picture how different the theatrical environment was. Just 20 years, 20 years ago. I mean, obviously, like five oh years God. ago, but 20 years ago. Um, I think we're probably in the same boat as far as the 2000s go, where this was a time when I mean, I was in college for the most part. Sometimes it was part time. Sometimes it was full time. But I had free time and I had at least one person I knew, if not myself, who worked at a theater, which meant I could <laughs> see movies for free. Yes. <laughs> so. No, I mean this this decade, this particular decade was very uh, formative in my formative years because I was sixteen in two thousand, okay, or seventeen, uh, yeah, seventeen. Sorry, um, I have to do a little math here. Uh, <laughs> but but yes, uh, you know, I worked at a movie theater. I know you worked at a movie theater during this decade, uh, but also you know this was like the time period where I also went to college during during the two thousand. So. Mm-hmm. It really um, kind of expanded my horizons, movie watching wise, and also, you know, uh, I started really going to the art houses uh, here, especially because I now had a license. And I, right, uh, for those who who are not familiar with the Cleveland area, like Cleveland's broken up into a west side and an east side. So I was uh, in my high school years, I lived in the southwest side. So okay. very rarely did you know at least in my family and some of my friends like we didn't go to the east side that much uh you know especially right. for for movies or any like why it's like there's a theater just up the street you know right but starting to realize that there are only certain places that played certain things and everything so yeah i i really look back on this this decade uh very very fondly so when I first got not my selling my license, but friends had access to a car. I convinced them to go up to the uh, way east side of Cleveland. <laughs> this would have been actually the late 90s, not quite 2000s we're talking about. Um, yeah. But two friends who I'm still pretty close with, their first art house movie experience was David Cronenberg's Crash. <laughs> one, I don't know why they let us in because we were clearly not old enough, but also sure. who's, you know, the people sneaking in are people that want to be there anyway. So who kind of who cares? Um, but they will still give me crap about that. Every now and then. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, it was it was an interesting I think it was also an interesting time because looking at the movies that I adore and I rate very highly from this particular decade, it's a lot of follow-up movies to the big indie boom of the nineties for directors. Mm-hmm. It's their second, third, fourth films. And for some of them, it's also like what could they do once they were like they had access to a little bit of studio money or again, very different theatrical environment 20 years ago, very different film production environment. 20 yes. years ago as well, where there was like mid-sized movies or, you know, you had kind of mini studios popping up within the major studios um, yes. as well. 
um, that, you know, Paramount Vantage used to be a thing for smaller budgeted little projects. Yeah. We just, we just don't have that anymore. Yeah. No, I, I, the I same I, way, I guess, but. Yeah. And this was, I think, uh, for some directors, you know, as you mentioned, you know, it, there was a transitional period for say, um, you know, let's look at the top, you know, like Steven Spielberg, okay. uh, who, you know, he finished the nineties with saving private Ryan, but then kind of went into like very interesting territory in, in the two thousands, like his AI, for example, you know, oh, yeah. that that's kind of a very heady, you know, slow moving kind of thing. I mean, it's, I, I really like that movie, but I, I could see where people were, they were used to Jurassic Park, Steven Spielberg. They were, you know, um, mm -hmm. not Kubrick Spielberg. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And then like, you know, he kind of followed it up with like minority report, which was also like, it was cool, but also kind of like, you know, you had to think a little bit. So, mm -hmm. so yeah, you know, it's like some of these directors kind of getting into their older age Scorsese, you know, as well, like gangs of New York. And oh yeah, some people might call it his, Oscar bait era, era <laughs> uh, you know, with the aviator. And then of course he finally won for departed, uh, yeah. um, you know, and some people still debate like, you know, should that have been the one that, that got him his Oscar or whatever, <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, a very, um, you know, there was just, I think a lot of cool things creatively. And also this was uh, in this decade, it's like more the advent of digital filmmaking coming in where there was the old, more old school. Yeah. 35 and and 16 millimeter and now it's like towards the end of that decade it's like where filmmakers embrace digital and also movie theaters embrace digital because yeah. you know uh, in that next decade on uh, the 2010s whatever yeah we're calling that you know is where it kind of fully switched over so yeah a lot of a lot of interesting things going on in this decade i think about the, yeah from a production standpoint it is kind of the last gasp i guess of, of predominantly shot on film films as well that's a good point yeah I really thought about it that from that perspective because also as soon as you mentioned the digital age that came in in the 2000s i was thinking of some of those train wrecks that were just like <laughs> yeah. okay that's more of an experiment than it is a film interesting but mm, yeah i don't know here for some reason i always think of the movie time code that mike figgy did where it was like the four frames um, oh yes I mean, yes uh, but also you know like you said there in which i don't think it's gonna be on any of our either of our lists um you know lucas brought back star wars yes in the 2000s <laughs> with some you know let's do it all digital and you know yeah. results have varied obviously in that particular case yeah. <laughs> so there, i did want to mention too there's a few that we've already covered on the life of this show which um I did not reuse and i don't think these are necessarily all that forgotten um well actually you just mentioned heist on a previous episode, yes, I believe when we were talking about heist films, yeah, which probably would have been on my list. I don't know if I would have picked it up, but it would have been on my short list for this episode because I feel like that one is very forgotten. I'd forgotten about it until you brought it up, and I remember really yeah. liking that movie when I when I saw it. Uh, Almost Famous, we we covered previously. Oh yeah, uh, I think with our Needle Drop episode, uh, Lord of War and the Funny Games remake. So. It's interesting. It's it's clearly a definitive decade for both of us personally. I think that we do kind of go back to, but what prompted the decision to do forgotten films? Well, yeah, I think now that uh, you know some of the years of the two thousands are getting into you know are you know twenty four years ago twenty three there there tends to be I think a 
a generational gap uh, sometimes. And uh, there's all this influx of new films. And, you know, I hate that. I hate the word content, but, you know, we got to just embrace it. But, you know, <laughs> the fact that, that so many films are coming out each year yeah. and so much content is being released on streaming, that some of those, some of the films that, you know, maybe at the time when we saw them, we were like, oh man, this is something I would own on on DVD and watch forever and ever. Yeah. They sometimes just slowly as time goes on, it's like they sometimes get forgotten or pushed to the side. Mm -hmm. And when you do rediscover them or, you know, re-see them on maybe some some of the streaming platforms, it's like, oh yeah, I remember that. Really? You know, and <laughs> Uh, so, so I don't know. I, I, I think, um, it, it's like some of them are, yeah, they, they are kind of getting lost in the shuffle, even though they had their moment to be released. And it was interesting to try to comb through and figure out, I didn't, I didn't search through a bunch of people's lists in this particular case. Cause I was like, oh man, I, I know that. I know this decade quite well. <laughs> yeah. So I, I went to letterbox and you can do, you know, films by decades. So I did the two thousands. And it automatically sorts by popularity. So I just jumped right to page like 10 or whatever. Sure. You know, this is this is uh, multiple tens of thousands of films we're talking about. And the farther, the deeper I went, I would just see some like, really, that's that low on popularity. But I particularly, you know, I love that movie or something. And then I when I ended up going through what films I have watched to to curate this list. I went through what I'd watched from the 2000s. And was really shocked when I would click through to see what platforms were streaming them or where to watch them. Yeah. Uh, I mean, aside from like, you know, my own collection or the library or, or buying it or something. And uh, they're just, there's so many. I was like, that's not even streaming anywhere. Granted, it could be <laughs> right. right in a second, but it's, yeah, there really are just like some forgotten ones that unless you are a fan of physical media, which we both are, you're you're not just going to happen upon them, I guess. You need to seek them out right. in a physical form and that kind of is, is the definition of forgotten these days yeah no and, and i think um you know say like a, a streaming service like canopy is mm -hmm. uh, you know w which is obviously funneled through libraries you know maybe that's kind of like where you can find a lot of these type of things sure. because they have specific sections it's like netflix now um which i you know i, I haven't had it for a couple months now i'm you know, trying to wean off a little bit. Uh, it's just, uh, I don't know. It's like they throw some stuff that's from the decade in there, but now they almost call it classics, which like makes oh, it weird. Um, it hurts like, a little bit. Even on HBO Max or on uh, Max uh, on Turner Classic Movies, like like they have some of their stuff from some of the stuff from the early 2000s is in Turner oh. Classic Movies now which I'm like, it hurts too. And, you know, so I hope people, I hope younger people who are growing up, you know, yeah. <laughs> maybe discover stuff on there, but, but it's, yeah, some of these are not like, and they're not going to be the most obvious choices. I think when you turn on your streaming services. Or right. Something. Right. In fact, uh, two of my three, uh, I was checking, they didn't even make the jump to Blu-ray yet. Oh, wow. And I was like, I mean, I just did a quick, search on dvd beaver and blu-ray.com and i was like really oh okay i really thought that would have been i'm glad i have my dvd copy <laughs> over here yes yes um, yeah one had a vhs or dvd option on amazon but i was like oh <laughs> okay uh that is odd but yeah well 
let's jump in. Do you want to kick us off, Mike, with your first honorable mention? Sure. So, like I said, I mean this this time period, I was going to the art house pretty often, mm-hmm. and uh, so I wanted to kind of highlight at least one of those that uh, I remember going to. I think at least. Two or three times, actually, um, and it's from 2006. It's a, um, it's called the Foot Fist Way, um, and this stars Danny McBride. Um, it's directed by Jody Hill. I've mentioned another Jody Hill movie on a previous podcast called Observe and Report. That was like his oh, yeah. graduation to bigger budget things but uh basically uh danny mcbride plays a very kind of cocky uh (laughs) um for you know uh, black belt person and he's kind of like rude to everybody um and uh i the the thing about this movie and if you are now a fan of um, any of the Jody Hill, Danny McBride shows that have been on HBO, like Eastbound and Down, and uh, you know the the newest one, the Righteous Gemstones mm-hmm. is um, uh, this one. You know, shot on film, but like for very very low budget, um, and uh, it it you know was only released in a handful of theaters but it's one of those ones that's instantly quotable yeah and um it kind of came out after napoleon dynamite so like i think they were um paramount vantage as you mentioned at the beginning oh really you know they they picked that up and uh you know i think they're always looking for the next napoleon dynamite um and uh so this was one that uh you know i I heard about went and saw by myself and then started to bring friends and, and then eventually it and then <laughs> lots of repeat watches. Uh, but uh, this one, I don't really hear much about um, these days, but um, when I was kind of scrolling through things that came out, I was like, Oh my God, I love that freaking movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was treated like Napoleon dynamite with me and friends around me. Cause we, I, I didn't see it till video, but it was just one of those like, I'll just put that on again. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think, you know, the fact that, you know, it was probably retroactively executive produced by Will Ferrell and all that stuff, you know, who was pretty popular at the, I mean, still pretty popular, but uh, that was like the decade that really kind of yeah brought him into movie stardom um, and everything. But uh, yeah. And, and that one, I mean, you can definitely tell they, they did a lot with very little. <laughs> oh yeah yeah i was just looking up it says seventy nine thousand dollar budget yeah not, not much at all um also yeah i was just looking it was uh premiered i guess or at least played at sundance in 06 yeah i'm always fascinated when like that or um i know super troopers like when comedies come out of sundance it's always really fascinating because you just i don't associate that particular especially like something slapstick like Super do or foot fist way in a lot of ways too. Yes, be like Sundance material, but I'm glad they do. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> was this also around when? Because uh, I feel like wasn't Adam McKay? Well, Farrell and McKay were buds for a while, but I feel like there was Adam McKay around it too. Yes, I think Adam McKay was also one of the executive producers when they were still working together with their. I think their production companies call like something sanchez uh all i want to say is dirty and i know that's not right yeah it might yeah i just remember it's like (laughs) like they have a coffee cup that's getting spilled or like it's getting poured into 
Oh, Gary, Gary, Gary Sanchez Productions. Gary, yes, and yeah. they have a female slant. It's like Gloria Sanchez. Um, oh yeah, I just watched something that had Gloria Sanchez in front of it. Yes, yeah, <laughs> that's funny. Well, let me uh, completely kill the mood with my first one because <laughs> it's not a comedy at all. It's sure actually like kind of jaw on the floor, like shocking if not just depressing. I went to see a lot of documentaries in the 2000s because as I started up in film school. I had a early uh, a teacher very early on screen some documentaries. And I was just like, oh, my God, like I had no idea, like just that you could do that with movies, but also like the hidden history that's there that you were like, sure. what? Uh, Cellulite Closet was a, a very formative experience of just like, oh, my God, there's all this secret stuff in movies from all of yeah. these, these decades. I just didn't even notice was there. I got to rewatch all this stuff. Well, one of the ones I caught in the theater was Bus 174 in uh, 2002 uh, mm -hmm. by Jose Padilla, who would be known to Hollywood and American audiences. He did the RoboCop remake in 2014. Mm -hmm. um, and he was part of that Rio, I Love You uh, anthology film. Uh, he did a couple of action movies that at least directed the first one called Elite Squad that is okay-ish. He's a, he's a Brazilian director. and But he started with the documentary, which is interesting. As far as I know with his career, he's only done this one documentary feature. And it's about the titular Bus 174. It was a bus that was um hijacked in uh june 2000 it's uh an armed it's a young man who went on with like one gun and he held this bus high he, he didn't mean to hold the bus hostage. he was going on to like rob people because you get they get into his backstory in the movie and it's just it's depressing it's just the stuff of tragedy and poverty and you're like he you know did not justifying the incident or anything like that but like he, he didn't have a lot to work with he didn't have anywhere to go he didn't have a lot of resources so he was just like he went on to rob people on this bus but then it blows up and becomes this inter this international incident. The press starts covering it. It's live on TV. It turns into a hostage situation. The police start swarming around the bus. Uh, there's a huge crowd of people that start swarming <laughs> around the bus. And uh, it lasted for a little while, um, like all day long, basically. So it was just this live on TV event. I don't want to go to the ins and outs or do spoilers. It does not you know, end well. I think everybody could probably sure. guess that. Uh, but it's a fascinating look is as far as the documentary goes in the era we're in now where like true crime series are like the biggest thing in podcasts and they're always yeah. on netflix and it's one that oh here's my note he was armed with a 38 revolver 38 caliber revolver which i don't know guns but i don't think that's a that's not a huge gun right <laughs> um at all but it's enough to terrify people and um he was also like he was a young kid i mean he wasn't uh he wasn't that old but it, it it's interesting it turns into this idea of it is he fueling the situation? Is it the police that are escalating the situation instead of de-escalating the situation? The role the crowd plays. I mean, we're talking hundreds, if not thousands, of people. Like at one point outside of the bus, the crowd is like, you get the feeling they may take over and just hang this guy because the police can't control the crowd and do their job and try to get everybody off the bus safely. Like it is just yeah, I hate to use the word circus, but it's it, it turns into a circus. It's it's a media uh police and just crowd um circus at any minute there. But it's also very prescient in kind of in 2002 showing how I don't want to blame the media in this case for the situation, but how it can escalate because there is there's cameras there now and it's on TV. And then people's perception of the event is only from what they've seen on the television and what newscasters have said rather than none of them are there. They don't really know what's going on, but, you know, it gets good ratings. Yeah. So it's a really interesting multiple narrative. And since it was live on TV, the coverage, you have a lot of just the actual footage of what was That's going cool. on 
Um, and there's some recreation to it too, to show kind of his background. But for the most part, you're just like, it's just, it's kind of like you're watching, he puts it together like you're watching the train wreck happen in real time as if you were watching, you know, the, the TV footage of, of the moment. Now, are there inter interviews or is it just all kind of like living off this actual footage and stuff? I don't, I feel like there may be some narration. It's been a minute since I've seen it. I don't remember there being like talking head interviews. I think it's more like they let the the to the TV, the newscasters kind of do that. Um, maybe there's some recorded uh, police stuff kind of just saying, hey, here's what was going on. Here's what happened. Um, but cool. it's mostly just like the footage of, of the incident happening. That's awesome. Yeah. Not very happy, but it's uh, it, it's a solid one that I think even speaks to the moment now that we have as well. But what's your what is your other honorable mention, Mike? So uh, my other honorable mention is it's from 2009. So it's towards the end of the decade, but um, it is uh, from Duncan Jones, who is the the son of David Bowie, and it's called Moon. And uh, Moon is a very um, kind of a cool movie. Uh, it, it has, um, I think, one of my favorite current actors sam rockwell yeah like the guy just seems so damn cool like you can you know just have a beer with him or something <laughs> you know he would be cool about it um but um but yeah this this movie is uh basically you know he you know it's a one-man show uh pretty much and he is he is towards the end of this uh, three-year stint of him on the moon and like the only way that he communicates with people is by taking videos and sending them and uh you know now as he's supposed to be leaving you start to kind of realize you know some things start to um kind of make him question you know am i am i still here am i alone or what um and uh this one i I absolutely adored. Uh, I, I think actually he made another cool movie right after called Source Code uh, with um, Jake Gyllenhaal. Yeah. And I don't know exactly. I think he's still making films, but he seems to be kind of OK. Well, he did Warcraft. Um, I guess, you know, he might want to forget about that one. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but he did get to work. He got to work with, you know. Uh, Peter Jackson in some ways, I think, but, um, but yeah, really um, interesting concept. And, you know, especially for a, um, his like uh, directorial debut uh, where it's high concept, but also doing that smart thing that I think first time directors should do is like limited characters, limited locations. And um you know, this, it, it just so, it, you, you never exactly sure where it's going. Um, and, um, you know, I think it just kind of ushered into uh, like towards the, I think towards the end of the, the 2000s is like, we were starting to see an, a number of newer filmmakers come in who, you know, are still making films today. And I think, um, you know, this kind of ushered his, this was his arrival piece mm -hmm. uh, and certainly one that um, I, I try to revisit every now and then. Um, but, you know, it's once one of those things. It's like sometimes I forget about it until I see the DVD on my shelf or something. <laughs> I didn't even run across this one. I remember seeing this, loving it, buying the DVD when it came out. 
I've seen it a few times, but even scrolling through the 2000 stuff, this one didn't even pop up. And I had a, I think I told you before recording, I had a list of like over 20 films that I was like, these are all overlooked, you know, yeah. movies from the 2000s. And I completely, completely forgot about this one. Yeah. I would also warn people too, if you're like, oh, that one does sound interesting. Um, it's a great, like you said, it's a great high concept idea that also delivers on that in an immensely satisfying way. Do not look up anything about this movie before you watch it. Yes. There's so much I'd love to talk about, but it would totally spoil it. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> yes. it. You know, it's a relatively uh, quick watch. Uh, you know, it's, I mean, it's a little over 90 minutes, but, um, you know, it doesn't overstay its welcome, I would say. Oh, man, yeah, I would have guessed like 80. Like, it, I remember it flying by. It, yeah. It, it engages you with um, sort of the process of how you know, what is, uh, the, the lunar industries or whatever it is that he's, that he's there on the moon with, um, that it's fascinating visually and how Sam, you know, Sam Rockwell, like he, he's got charm to spare and he's just, uh, a dude isolated on the moon <laughs> and yeah. It, it, yeah, actually it has like some hangout film vibes to it, but also the process of how life on the moon does work, um, which could hold you over with Sam Rockwell doing it for an easy 60 minutes, but, um, there's more to it than that, but you know, it knows that it exists in a world where people have seen 2001, A Space Odyssey. Yeah, exactly. Uh, thinking that a lot. Not like it references it necessarily, but like visually you're like, all right, this is pretty sweet. This this guy, this whoever's directed this knows what they're doing. Yeah. And I, um, one last thing I'll say is like, I think, uh, I don't know if he, I, I never really listened to any uh, interviews with him recently, but I don't know if he knowingly made a movie called Moon, you know, as an homage to his dad. I don't know. Um, but, uh, you know, I think it's kind of cool that, uh, you know, you know, you got moon, moon age daydream, all that stuff. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> I was just seeing the cast list here and I was like, I would have said two people. Yeah. In the cast list. <laughs> um, but I was like, oh, there are other parts. Of it. Okay. I do need to rewatch this one. Yeah. Uh, how about you? Uh, my second, uh, honorable mention is, uh, going all the way back to the start of the decade. It's from 2000 itself. I haven't revisited this one recently, but I watched this a number of times in theaters <laughs> because coming out of the nineties, I've always been like, I've always been interested in writing and the screenplay format. And it was, I took several classes in college that were all like, you know, about screenplays and writing screenplays and all that stuff. I love the story element to it. And in the nineties, if you would have quizzed me as a, as a teenager heading off to film school, I would have said in my top five screenwriters, one of them is Christopher McQuarrie because he did Usual Suspects. Mm -hmm. What a perfect puzzle and what a wow feeling. Yes. The guy knows how to write individual voices in such a unique and interesting way. And so I was pretty psyched when The Way of the Gun came out. Ah, yeah. In 2000, let alone the fact that you've got uh, Benicio Del Toro, Ryan Felipe, Juliette Lewis, James Caan, Tay Diggs, uh, Nikki Cat is in there. Sarah Silverman is in there, the opening scene, which is one of the <laughs> like, top tier, like cold open scenes that you will ever see. <laughs> well, that may be hyping up a little bit, but I remember watching it the first time just being like, oh, shit, I cannot believe uh, but it sets up the two main characters. They're two uh, criminal yes. characters, Ryan Felipe and Benicio. And, but they almost have it in that, like the philosophy of the criminal kind of vibe. Yes. They kind of know what they're doing. And, you know, their conversations are interesting. And they were interesting in a way that wasn't that Tarantino knockoff kind of thing, which was rampant in the late 90s and early 2000s. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it wasn't like that. So their idea was they were going to kidnap... Uh, and hold for ransom a surrogate mother of a powerful and, you know, shady guy. So it was a surrogate 
mother having the kid for this uh, for this dude. That's Juliet Lewis. So you got a pregnant Juliet Lewis in this one, and then uh, Tay Diggs is a uh, personal favorite of that time period. Um, I haven't kept up with his career recently, but back then he was doing some stuff that I just really thought was awesome. Uh, he and Nikki Cat are like kind of the hitmen that are assigned to like go find these two to go find Benicio and Ryan, and uh, <laughs> you know bring back surrogate mother and all that. It gets like wild bunch level. Yeah. painfully violent um that time so i love that he didn't really like steer away from that at all um but this is a christian McQuarrie's first time directing and writing uh wrote the screenplay as well it's before he hooked up with tom cruise by a few years so it's it's him kind of like i feel like he was writing something that it's not twisty and turny the way the usual suspects is but it's still operating within like a criminal underworld kind of uh kind of area um but I never, I don't remember ever thinking of Usual Suspects while watching it. It's its own interesting, very unique thing. And also, if you, if you like any of those stars in there, it's just great seeing all of them interacting together. And yes. yeah, I actually, I didn't look to see where that one was streaming at, but because I my, my DVD's safe on my shelf over there. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, I oh man, this one, wow, I haven't seen this one in so long, and I'm I'm kind of excited that you mentioned it now because I do. I definitely need to rewatch this one. It uh, does say it's streaming on Tubi right now, and the Amazon listing lists Blu-ray for thirty-five dollars. <laughs> I don't even know if that's this region or not. And then DVD seven ninety-three and VHS tape seven ninety-seven. Nice. Might just get the VHS tape. I was going to say that might just be uh, you know formatted to fit your screen on VHS sort of thing. But um, not that he does hasn't done great movies since then. But it was just one of those that was. I, I thought there was just such a power to like. He's stricken on his own and clearly wants to be a director as well now. And I think he knows what he's doing. Like it's 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 really well directed. I think the um he got Dick Pope, the cinematographer, to come in yeah. and this one. So like no slouch at all there. But uh yeah, it, I think you can see a lot of I haven't watched this one in a minute, but I do remember thinking there's a few times when there's action scenes or a gunfight um that I was like, you could see this guy really wants to just go play with the the Mission Impossible toys. <laughs> <laughs> this is gonna work out well for him in the long run. Real quick, I just remember when uh, when he was nominated for an Oscar, and uh, the woman accidentally called him Dick Poop. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, that's uh, I'm sure that's not the first time he heard that. Thank in you his for life, doing unfortunately, because it made me laugh for like a year. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, well, Mike, what is your uh, your actual pick for Forgotten Films of two thousands? All right, so this one, I don't know if it's actually, it it can't really qualify as forgotten. Uh, just, okay. Just because uh, of, you know, of the prestige of its, of its uh, writer-director, and, you know, it did win uh, the Academy Award for Best Adapted Screenplay. Um, but because right now the, um, the holdovers is, uh, out in theaters and is in the award conversation, yeah. um, I'm going with sideways and, uh, sideways with, uh, uh, Paul Giamatti, uh, Thomas Hayden church, Virginia Madsen and Sandra O, oh, uh, this kind of foursome in, yeah. in the film. Let me show you how this is done. Hold the glass up and examine the wine against the light. You're looking for color and clarity. Now, stick your nose in it. There's some strawberry. Oh, there's just a flutter of like a like a nutty Edom cheese. When do we drink it? Now. Mmm. Are you chewing gum? No. 
Saturday. Here's my last week of freedom. We're gonna play some golf, eat some great food, and we're gonna send you off in style. It's gonna be great. These girls want to party with us. If they want to drink Merlot, we're drinking Merlot. No, if anybody orders Merlot, I'm leaving. I am not drinking any Merlot! Oh, I'm gonna go back to my place. <laughs> yeah! Tonight, we are celebrating Miles' book deal, published oh, author. Oh, what's the title? The Day After Yesterday. Oh. You mean today? Um... Yeah. Why did you tell them that my novel was being published? You've been officially depressed for like two years now. We're gonna go have some fun, Miles. Do you remember fun? A woman finds out how I live, that I'm not a published author. Any interest she has is gonna evaporate real quick. You guys should stay for the weekend. No, we have to get back for the rehearsal dinner. What rehearsal dinner? I consider, I remember making, you know, uh, making uh, multiple trips from my uh dorm room up to the the art house to to see i think i saw this like four times in the theater i i really i really love this movie and um i think it's now because of the uh the reteaming of alexander payne and paul giamatti that it's becoming more like talked about at least i've seen it in in the film twitter space uh where yeah or like um, rediscovering this movie and it is uh, available on Peacock, which actually I watched over the weekend. So that's why um, that's why I'm including this because sure. it's fresh in my mind. Uh, but uh, at, you know, in many points you can say, this is just a buddy movie, a road movie. Uh, but I think one of the things that Payne is so good at is uh, making character pieces with flawed characters. You know, these are not, uh, you know, definitely Paul Giamatti's character is, uh, has his issues. And also Thomas Hayden Church's character is definitely like this, uh, you know, charming sleazebag kind of actor uh, who, you know, willingly wants to cheat on his wife before or cheat on his fiance before he gets married. Mm -hmm. And Paul Giamatti is uh, plays this um, kind of a uh, a struggling author who, um, you know, is also has alcoholic uh, tendencies and everything and still kind of depressed over the fact that he, you know, him and his wife got divorced. Um, there's something about this movie, much like The Holdovers, um, that it's brutally funny, uh, but then also at times can be sad and melancholy. And I don't say that to be negative towards the movie. I actually, I like, I like the fact that it's a little sad and a little melancholy. Um, and it's kind of cool to see like these younger film writers, like discovering it now mm -hmm. because they realize like, how good of an actor Paul Giamatti is, or, you know, at least that whole ensemble and the fact that he was not nominated for best actor for that movie still blows my mind to this day. Not um, even nominated. Yeah. He wasn't nominated. Uh, Thomas Hayden church was, and Virginia Madsen were. Huh? So I think uh, while it would, I'm sure it shows up, on cable often or you know stuff like that 
So I, I know it doesn't really fit the criteria of what, you know, why making this episode, but I really highly encourage people to, you know, revisit this one because I really do think it holds up. <laughs> and, um, and I, you know, I'm kind of rooting for Paul Giamatti at this year's Oscars. Uh, you know, if yeah. he gets, I hope he does. Um, or, you know, and even Alexander Payne, like I, I really think the holdovers is a return to, form for alexander payne because his previous movie downsizing i did not really i i thought it was ambitious but i didn't really care for the whole thing so uh this one is uh i don't know it, it plays kind of like a it has like a place in my heart uh just because of uh there's certain things about it that i just like there's certain patches of dialogue that make me laugh but then also you know you really feel for uh, Paul Giamatti's character, flawed as he is. Yeah. Man, you could have won a hundred bucks me so easily. Been like, hey, Aaron, is Paul Giamatti, I know he did win, nominated. Yeah, of course. A hundred percent he was nominated for that movie. It's, well, I was also, I was checking too. And part of being like these forgotten films, I mean, I, I think it speaks to both of us being like physical media guys, but it's, um, the Blu ray right now is going for like 50 bucks because it's been, you know, years since it was out put of out. Yeah, out of print. You can get DVD and VHS of it too, or a uh, different region Blu-ray for $70. But it was like, <laughs> how is it not like a Criterion or some sort of a prestige two disc, something or other? Um, I would love to hear, get like all four actors together for an actor's commentary track, you know, oh, yes. later looking back on it, something like that, um, just to kind of see. But yeah, also, I mean, no, nobody's got Paramount or what did you say? <laughs> Where's it streaming? Oh, Peacock. <laughs> Peacock. Like it, it's, it's kind of forgotten if it's like, Oh, you can see it on Peacock. It was like, well, I'm not going to take the time to figure out how the fuck that works. So I guess I'm not seeing this movie, <laughs> but I, but I do see it being mentioned, like you said, because it is another pain, um, Giamatti pairing, um, yes. and we haven't seen that. <clears throat> Sorry. And we haven't seen that since for all these years. So, and I'll say if, uh, you know, not, I'm not shilling for Peacock, but, for their lowest tier, like four ninety five, you can you can watch the holdovers for no extra costs, and then it goes you know right to sideways. sideways. Oh, okay, yeah. I mean, hey, that's worth five bucks. Just remember yeah. to cancel when you're done, because right. that lesson the hard way. <laughs> <laughs> I actually have not seen this one. I think since like VH. No, I was probably in the DVD world by two thousand four. Probably since like it first came out. Uh, I saw it in the theater a couple times, and then. Um, I remember we were trying to be all, you know, fancy about it in college. And uh, everybody brought a bottle of wine, which, you know, we're broke <laughs> college kids. I'm sure it was like Boone's Farm or maybe a notch better, you know. Yeah. Uh, but no, uh, what's the one? But no Merlot. Yeah. No, it was, it no. was allowed. Um, yeah. And had, you know, a bunch of us, you know, snobby film geeks uh, sitting around watching Sideways once it first came out on DVD. Um, yeah, I need to go back to that. I have not seen that since then. Well, I think uh, part of it is like the timing of everything because the year before was um, American Splendor had come out. Um, and, uh, you know, being that it was filmed yep. in Cleveland and a Cleveland, you know, about Harvey Picar. Yep. And then that came out. It was just like, I was like, I'm in whatever this guy's doing because I do remember seeing him in private parts as well. I don't know. Like, this has become like a, a love letter to Paul Giamatti. But I, <laughs> I just think like he's he's such a talented guy and i'm i'm glad that he's getting you know more recognition and everything yeah yeah absolutely absolutely now what did you pick uh so oddly enough 
I also have a, we have a whole decade to look for. And my, my movie is also from 2004. So I don't know what, something about the gravitational pull in our memory <laughs> of what was going on in 2004. And also from a uh, writer director, although I think Payne usually does like adaptations, mm-hmm. um, I yeah. think. But um, uh, I went with a David O. Russell film from 2004 called I Heart Huckabees. Have you ever transcended space and time? Uh, time, not space. No, I don't know what you're talking about. No. Very, very good! Albert, what brought you to the Philosophical Club? You mean the existential detectives? What kind of investigation? Existential. You'll spy? Yes. On me? Yes. Will you be spying on me in the bathroom? Yes. What are you doing here, Brad? What? 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 Brad, you're killing me! Shut up! Shut up! Everything is connected and everything matters. Now, isn't that cool? Human drama is inevitable. Suffering cannot be diminished. How am I not myself? How am I not myself? Myself. You don't plant no tree in the parking lot. How's the sex? How is the sex? We're this private about our seven minutes of heaven. Eight minutes of heaven. It's not quality, it's quantity. <laughs> Jesus has never mad at us if we live with him in our hearts. I hate to break it to you, but he is. He most definitely is. There's glass between us. You can't deal with my infinite nature, can you? That is so not true. Wait, what does that even mean? Say this blanket represents all the matter and energy in, in the universe, okay? This is me, this is you, and then over here, this is the Eiffel Tower, right? It's Paris. Everything is the same, even if it's different. Exactly, because we are connected. I realize, I guess, first things first with it, um, the cast. The mm. cast in Iron Huckabees is just spectacular. You've got Jason Schwartzman, Isabel Huppert, Dustin Hoffman, Lee Tomlin, Jude Law, Mark Wahlberg, Naomi Watts. Naomi Watts, that deep into the cast, you still have a <laughs> Naomi Watts. Yeah. Uh, Ilsha Fisher's around there. Jonah Hill has a uh, smaller part. Um, Gene Smart, Kevin Dunn, Tippi Hedren is in there. Um, wow, coming back, it's it's wild. And oh, and I forgot Richard Jenkins. Like it's it it's just yeah. it's a who's who of folks, which is kind of what Russell started. Actually, no, it's kind of what he still does, even even through like American Hustle or The Fighter. Like he has these like stacked casts of people that really want to want to work with him. Yeah. In this particular case, he also co-wrote it. It's a hard movie to pitch. And I remember telling friends, like, you got to see Art Huckabee's like, oh, what's it about? I'm like, well, there's these existential detectives who are helping people. And they're like, what are you talking about? <laughs> Lily Tomlin and Dustin Hoffman are a couple and they run an existential detective agency. And basically, they slowly just bring in um, Jason Schwartzman and uh, Mark Wahlberg's already um, he's been doing work with them since uh, the big thing in New York, which they mean is 9-11, but they don't actually say because he's a firefighter having I don't even know if it's like midlife crisis. I guess they're probably about that old as far as characters go. Yeah. Um, and then they then uh, Jude Law ends up going to them as well. Once he knows about them, then his wife, played by Naomi Watts, starts going to them. And like, they just slowly pull all these people to really start questioning you know, the nature of reality and what you know a meaningful life is. Um, and then, of course, uh, Isabel Huppert shows up, who's a former <laughs> colleague of theirs who kind of represents like that existential thing of like, oh, fuck it. <laughs> you know, the, the French uh you know philo- philosophy wing uh, comes in there but it's also kind of a critique of like the big box stores that were just you know, like taking over the landscape in the 2000s it's called huckabees but it's clearly a stand in for walmart 
but not in like a in a very smart satirical way, not in like a Mel Brooks, sure. you know, or uh, what's an idiocracy like their stand in for, you know, oh, yeah. or whatever, you know, um, it, it's very smartly done and it has its own kind of design style. And it's it's very realistic. And you have Jason Schwartzman, who runs the Open Spaces Coalition, he's into poetry, he's kind of the the new version of a hippie. Jude Law is the corporate guy who's rising fast in Huckabee's. Uh, Nami Watts is like their model and spokesperson. Um, so it deals with like the vapid nature of celebrity. I don't know. It's just all of it. And it's, but it's, it's not heavy at all. It's, it's real quick. It's light on its feet. It's super witty. I used to put clips from this movie on like mixtapes or mixed CDs that I would make for <laughs> friends. Cause like, I just remember, um, there were a few movies, maybe like a half dozen or so that I had on like a cassette tape that I would play when I was delivering pizzas to pay for, <laughs> for my college yeah. books. And this is one, and this is like this movie and a bunch of Richard Linklater movies. I would just listen to the dialogue um, as if it was a radio play, like it just works on all those all those different levels, and is just uh, I thought just absolutely fascinating. And it's not um, I didn't check to see fully like where it's streaming at, but it never made the jump to Blu-ray that I could find. It has VHS and DVD, and uh, I'm glad I have uh, my DVD of it. But you know, David Russell, he he was coming off of um, Spanking the Monkey, his debut, then he did Flirting with Disaster, and then jumped to um, Three Kings. Yeah. Which I also really enjoyed. I don't know how much that was like a hit, you know, machine for the studio or like that. But then Huckabee's, uh, he did a couple years later after that, uh, went on to much more acclaim, although his most recent Amsterdam didn't really get oh, much, yeah. much, uh, much love or, uh, or attention. I struggled with that one. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. I was um, falling asleep, uh. <laughs> but it's, I think it's someone who is a, I, he's in that category of like humorist, uh, almost at that point in his career, uh, if not just satire. And I couldn't quite peg where I thought his career was going after Huckabee's. Like when you look at him in order, you're like spanking the monkey flirting. Like I just said, and three Kings, you're like, what, what are you, what are you interested? Like, I, I got that auteur yeah. mentality where like, I'm like, what boxes should I be checking for you? Obviously he's still, you know, still going forward and still, uh, still making films. So I'll, I'll keep watching, but yeah, that one, I just, I feel like that one isn't really talked about too much. It's like the fighter, Silverline's playbook and American hustle and not much since then from him that people really remember. So. Yeah. It's like the most, I think the most that this gets talked about is that the, the clip of him yelling at uh, Lily Tomlin that uh, was leaked. Oh, right, right, right. So like that's, I think, you know, I think you're right on the money is that it's like, sometimes it does get overlooked. It gets overshadowed because of that, but it is like this light, funny, yeah. Also deeply smart movie. I, um, I do remember seeing it in the theater and I was, I had to see it a second time because I was kind of confused the first time. I mean, because like a lot talking about all this existentialism, like, and I, yeah. I think I was actually in a philosophy class at the time, and I was like, oh, I don't. This feels like homework to me, <laughs> right? <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, but no, it's like you see that clip of David O. Russell kind of. I don't know if it like sometimes it feel like it was like staged, but you know, it, I think there was some legitimacy to him but hey well i, I did i looked it up because i remember like oh there's controversy on that i'm like oh shit was this one of those like he was abusive or what uh, like i i who know what was that again and so yeah i watched the clip and um lily tomlin made uh did a response like once that became like this viral clip of like oh my god look at this tyrant on the set um so she responded saying i love david there was a lot of pressure in making the movie even the way it came out 
you could see it was very free associative crazy movie and david was under a tremendous amount of pressure and he's a very free form kind of guy anyway <laughs> so i was like well all right <laughs> um is it telling that i don't think she worked with him since then i don't know but <laughs> Um, right. But he has a stable. So like, I, you know, who knows, like you to get pressure, you have a shitty day. Sometimes that happens. Hopefully, you, you know, you can rise above it and not be an abusive jerk on, on set or in your job. But sometimes it comes out in the wrong way. I mean, Christian Bale had his meltdown on the Terminator set, too. So, right. Uh, hopefully we're better than our worst days in the long run. But uh, if you can grab Huckabee's somewhere, anywhere, um, it's it's definitely I don't know it's it's a really great one. It's a good fun time. And uh, it's one of those I threw on the other day and I was like, does this one still hold up? And I was like, I just uh, I was I think I was telling you I was doing something down here in my basement. I was like, I'll just put it on for now. I'm like, nope, I'm just watching this whole thing. <laughs> grabs me, grabs me every time. So so our official watch challenge picks for forgotten films of the 2000s are I Heart Huckabees from 2004 and Sideways also from 2004. Aaron, what challenge do we have for next time? For next time, uh, it is the, oh, you already told me this, Mike. I already forgot the numbers. The 40th? Yeah, 40th anniversary. 40th anniversary of the Sundance Film Festival. And we've done some other episodes before on Sundance, like the Sundance alums, uh, things like that. But it's a beloved, you know, American festival. And uh, we can both virtually attend because they're still doing virtual screenings. But one thing that's connected to the festival is the Sundance Lab. Mm. where young filmmakers actually several filmmakers we just were discussing uh you know went can go to the lab to get either screenwriting or directing or possibly even get a short film or even their movie kind of you know rolling because they're part of the sundance lab so we're going to look at sundance lab alumni excellent in the meantime if you'd like to suggest a topic or genre you like covered on a future show hit us up on instagram at watch challenge podcast or email us at watchchallengepodcast at gmail.com or the links in the show notes. Indeed. And until next time, folks, rate and review the show and whatever podcast app you are using. And we'll see you all with the next challenge. Mm-hmm.